We are in the church season of Lent right now, which marks the days leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection. And we are on our fifth week. I can't believe it's been yeah, this we're, long we're already. We're almost through to the end of uh, Lent. I know. Um, but we have taken up this project of giving up unhelpful, harmful, or incomplete beliefs for Lent. We're following the encouragement from Richard Rohr that you can't think yourself into new ways of living. You have to live yourself into new ways of thinking. So our hope is to offer some constructive theologies that you could take up in place of some more harmful beliefs um, and to give you some practical experiments and tools for helping solidify those beliefs. So this week's topic that we are unpacking, we've called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, part one. (laughs) So we are focusing on the sinners part this week. Maybe you are nerdy, like Vince. Thank you for calling that out. It is true. <laughs> or you follow us on Instagram because we posted about it there too. Yeah. But, um, and you know where this phrase comes from, sinners in the hands of an angry God. But this is a title of a sermon from Jonathan Edwards that was preached in 1741. And it's tied to a revival movement called the Great Awakening. And it's really quite the uplifting message, you oh know? Yeah, let's put <laughs> so it up there. Like, happy here's a, here's a, a snippet from it. Before I read this, again, this is a quote from Jonathan Edwards, not Haley Larson. <laughs> this says, Oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe and burn it asunder. Yeah. Mm, Yep. Um, So that's that. Yeah. Most people probably won't be directly familiar with this sermon but I think that the messaging that it uses about God's view of humanity, which you can kind of get from that, just that small excerpt, it's pretty common. And this idea that we are wicked and doomed and deserving of God's punishment unless we confess Jesus as Lord and give up our evil ways is everywhere. (laughs) You are fundamentally wicked, rotten to the core messaging, is communicated in many Christian settings in ways that are really loud and clear, and I think in some subtle religious messaging too. Yeah, it's it, it's not as though, um, I, I, I think it'd be hard to find a message today that is that overtly like, you are damned and going to hell and so you better repent, but we get almost up to, up to that without using those same words. Yes. So it's yeah. subtle, yeah. Yeah. And that can be even more dangerous, too, because you're not as It can feel like a bait and switch, right? Bait and switch is a word that people are familiar with in religious settings of like, oh, yeah, look, we we have good things, but then, aha, you are fundamentally rotten to the core, and you need to fix that. Yeah. So some of what we're exploring today is can sin be talked about in a healthy way? Mm -hmm. And can we drive home that the most true thing about you is that you are loved, not that you are bad? Mm So for the beliefs that we've looked at during Lent, we've tried to think through what the good or the purpose, I guess, behind the belief may be, because these beliefs don't come out of nowhere. They form and are perpetuated for a reason, and many people look to them as helpful. So what purpose does the sinners in the hands of an angry God type messaging serve? I think that the stress on sin as the starting point or sinner as a main identity marker is supposed to function as a moral compass and encourage people to acknowledge their dependence on God. Yeah, like to, like uh, 
I am not self-centered. Yes. I am God-centered. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This idea that you are sinful and in need of saving, you mm-hmm. can't be good on your own. I want to be really careful here, but I think that there are pieces of truth definitely, in that. Definitely. I mean, self-centeredness is is not something that I strive for. <laughs> and yeah, sin yeah. is a reality. Yes, absolutely. And absolutely. I do believe that looking beyond yourself for sources of hope, like that's a really good thing and 100%. necessary. We talk about that we a do, lot. We do. We say one of our, I think, most well-worn phrases in this church is we all fundamentally need help we can't give ourselves. Exactly. And so there's a piece that yes. that's, that's tied to the same thing. Absolutely. But it's the insistence that the most fundamental thing about you yes. is that you're wicked and yes. incapable. Yeah. That is just everywhere with fear-based messaging. That is what really torments people, and yeah. that's what's really problematic. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think one of the things that feels mystifying to me um, about the, the energy, um, there's a lot of energy to convince people they're sinful. Mm-hmm. Um, in, I mean, even, even this kind of you know, flourish from this 1741 sermon, but I think we could see it in a lot of more modern sermons. Um, I, I'm, I'm mystified by that energy to convince people they're sinful because I, I don't know anybody who doesn't feel regret in life. Yeah. And I don't know anybody who like, thinks they've done everything perfectly. Um, but I do know a lot of people who feel that they can't be honest about that. And that, that's one of the interesting things. To me, it, it's not that people need to be convinced that they're imperfect or that they make mistakes, they might hurt people, that, that, that they are capable of hurting others, that they're capable of participating in systems that hurt others. I don't think people need to be convinced that. I think we need to be given permission and space to talk about the ways that we already believe that mm-hmm. without feeling like if, if, we, if, we, if we do admit those things, that we might be thrown into that you know, pit of hell. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. That, it does feel like there's a lot of drive to control the way we talk about this, even though, uh, like in, in Christian settings, where you have to use language like, you know, I, w- I, I once was lost, but now I'm found, or, you know, from a hymn or something like that. Whereas I actually don't think, like, generally speaking, people, I just, everyday people, however religious they are or aren't, I don't think people really need convincing that they are not perfect and yeah. that they often hurt other people. I think most people are like, yep, that is, that's a reality in my life. Yeah. We love a good neat and tidy before and after. Yeah. That's not really what happens. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so, yeah. So as we unpack why this is unhelpful, I think it's fairly obvious why it's unhelpful, but I do, um, I really think that doubling down on the sinners in the hands of an angry God approach makes following Jesus into a sin management system. Mm -hmm. And I want to recognize just how much of a toll it can take on you. Mm Hearing that you are wicked or bad or undeserving of the love of God. Yeah. That's really heavy. And that's not a helpful foundation for any type of relationship with God or a relationship with yourself. Yeah. And it's not, it, it's not just that message in and of itself. But, it, you know, if you think about it compounded over many years or compounded over um, many different people delivering that to you, especially as a child maybe even. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there is like it's important to step back and just acknowledge the weight of that, the yeah. toll that it can take, like you said. Yeah. And you're yeah. right. It does start so young. Yeah. There's yeah. Um, a few podcast episodes that I've listened to on church camps or youth groups mm-hmm. that I found with, really interesting. Which you have in your background. Because yeah. I yeah. grew up going to youth group and uh-huh. going to camp and working at camp. Um, but the way that they framed it was really helpful for me to think through this idea of you get kids to invite their friends with 
dodgeball and snacks and tie-dye, friends who often don't really have religious ties, and you've got this allure of sharing Jesus or sharing the gospel that becomes a double-edged sword because kids aren't just leaving with a positive message Mm. of God loves them, but this new identity crisis of being a bad person that Mm. was in need of saving in the first place. Mm -hmm. Like there wasn't a system in place before mentally. And so you have people who may have had no set concept of that before, now leaving with this internalized sense of I am bad and could go to hell and that's why I need God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard um, uh, people who study um, brain science around and how, um, how children develop between zero and 12 um, the, the, it, the suggestion in a lot of this research is that the moral imagination beyond self-interest isn't well developed enough and, um, to even fit into a concept like sin until you're about eight to 10 years old. And so um, uh, I, I, the, these researchers were relating this to um, something like Focus on the Family, which is a, a pretty uh, popular, like in the 80s and 90s, um, uh, curriculum that would be used in churches or in uh, families, like you know, parents would be provided with focus on the family by their churches to uh, to to work with in their um, in their families, and um, even if you didn't grow up in the most fundamentalist um, environment, if you grew up in church at all, likely you experienced something that was formed by focus on the family because they were like a content monster mm-hmm. in the eighties and nineties. Um, so th- the these um, these materials basically teach, like the, they, they teach parents that the child is sinful and the parent's job is then to help them come to that realization as young as possible. And brain, silent, brain science today is really like problematizing that. Like it's saying like, if you, it is what, what we're trying to see, or uh, what brain science is trying to suggest is the child is still developing, not mm-hmm. the child is, is sinful. And, uh, and that's a really different, like if you can have that in the back of your brain in terms of how you're parenting your kids, um, not when my three-year-old does something uh, they're being sinful, but my three-year-old is doing something developmentally appropriate, mm-hmm. and my job is to help them continue to develop, not to convince them that they're a sinner and they need to repent for that. Yeah. Um, as we get, you know, a more um, developed moral imagination, then the conversation is a little bit different. But especially with young kids, it's it's really, um, yeah. That I, there's a lot of questions I think yeah. about the way that this is often done in religious settings. Definitely, I think of um, a time. When I was in Sunday school, in probably in the fourth grade, mm. we were given a survey where we had to rate how like Jesus we were okay. in different categories. Okay. This was like a one is the worst, five is the best type of situation. So like being kind, showing love, putting others first. And I was distraught over this ranking system mm. because compared to Jesus, like how could I be anything good at all? Yeah. But then scripture talks about things like being made in the image of God and God is good. So wouldn't that make me good? And in my fourth grade self-assessment, like I was doing a pretty good job at this whole like kind and showing love thing, you know, like I thought I was doing pretty good. I read my Bible a lot. But when I got to working on this survey, like am I a one because I am sinful, horrible and awful? Right, right. Or am I a five because Jesus loves me and I'm trying my best? Mm. So it's super interesting. I remember this process so vividly. I gave myself all ones initially, mm-hmm. and then I erased it, and I gave myself all fives. Wow, you had to deal with the extremes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh, it's such a picture of anxiety for a young I kid. I know. Gosh, that makes me so sad for young Haley. I know. And then this is the worst part. My Sunday school teacher saw it 
and laughed at me (laughs) and made a big deal about how I must think really highly of myself. And I was crushed because I think about it now, how sad it was this, the A that I was set up for this really unfair wrestling, but also that in the end, my belief in my own goodness and how much I was trying that that was laughed at and that that was shut down. Yeah. Wow. So that was just like, there's a lot of instances I can think through that show how this has formed me at a really young age, but that one is one that I'm like, Mm -hmm, there mm -hmm. is this, I think we have when we're young, this inclination to believe that we are good. Mm -hmm. And it's so problematic and really troubling when the messaging is just constantly countering that. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side too, avoiding talking about sin altogether is also problematic. Because the inevitability of sin is just a reality and it needs to be worked through. And we say this each week, um, wanting to contribute to justice and healing in the world. That Mm. can't happen without addressing this presence of sin and our own participation Mm -hmm. in really sinful structures. There's um, a Ash Wednesday reflection from Nadia Boltz-Weber, who's one of my favorites, uh, where she talks about um, the kind of issue with the range of approaches to sin. And we're going to put this quote up so you can read along if you want to. She says, I think liberals tend to think admitting we are sinful is the same as having low self-esteem. And then conservatives equate sin with immorality. So one end of the church tells us that sin is an antiquated notion that only makes us feel bad about ourselves, so we should avoid mentioning it at all. While the other end of the church tells us that sin is the same as immorality and totally avoidable if you can just be a good, squeaky clean Christian. Mm Yet when sin is boiled down to low self-esteem or immorality, then it becomes something we can control or limit in some way, rather than something we are simply in bondage to. The reality is I cannot free myself from the bondage of self. And I really like this because I think it captures a potential middle ground here, that being sinful isn't just some individual character flaw that's tied to eternal suffering. And it isn't something that we have to avoid talking about altogether so that we can feel good about ourselves. Being sinful is an inevitable part of being human. Being messy and broken isn't a personal failure. It's just an honest assessment. So I think on this scope of overemphasis to ignoring altogether, there just has to be a healthier way to look at sin. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's so good. I want to, um, I want to um, highlight an awesome uh, comment from uh, Bethany. I'm going to put it up on the screen for us here. Um, so she, she, uh, she's uh, taking umbrage with what I mentioned before in, in, a, in a really uh, awesome way, I think. She says, um, I think it's a bit naive to see the world this way where, um, where uh, mo- most everybody knows that they're sinful. They're like, who do you know that doesn't have regret? And she says, you know, our last president, president believed he had no need for forgiveness and millions of people agreed. And I think that that's a really important... So I think one, one sense, I think it's just great to highlight this because I kind of, I think I live in a progressive bubble and I have never, I've never lived in a place that wasn't Chicago or Milwaukee. And so certainly I think I'm probably speaking from uh, my own like blinders. Uh, and I wonder if... Um, I, I, on, on the other hand, I wonder if maybe this idea of um, of like the 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 refusal to believe um, in sin or the refusal to believe in um, one person's sin is in, in particular our last president. Um, I think that that is actually maybe exactly what we're talking about because there is like the 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 messaging that that comes from is is what you see in uh, Nadia Boltz Weber's 
uh, words where if sin is immorality or low self-esteem, you know, pick your poison, the conservative or the, li- or the liberal poison there, then it is something that we can just manage out of the way or we can mm-hmm. explain away. Whereas if we're talking about this more like being sinful is an inevitable part of being human. There is no avoiding it, but it's not the core of who you are. Uh, then there is a there is a way that we don't have to ever get into this game of like defending or pretending somebody isn't sinful because all of that energy is is just is feeding that anxiety monster which we're trying to get away from. Yeah. So uh, I just think that's a it's an awesome comment and it, and it's worth continuing that conversation. So good call, Beth. I like yeah. that. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about how this functions for people in power, mm-hmm. especially who, people who power exactly that, either yeah. claim some type of like. I don't know, I think of pastors or religious leaders who carry a lot of power or people who have just really appealed to Christians Mm -hmm. in a widespread sense that any type of mistake or not even mistake doing it on purpose, Mm -hmm. that becomes justified by this identity that you can trace back to like, oh, but they're a follower of Jesus, they're a Christian, and and they're forgiven. And so that makes it okay, yes, yeah. yeah, Ends up okaying things. Yeah, there's a a more reasonable place to live where, um, and I think honestly this is where religion is so troubling because I do think that as we're as we're about to turn to is mm-hmm. I think there are ways to talk about the sacred and the religious and the spiritual that are uniquely helpful to this and we need them and at the same time it can really get in the way I mean this is the plus and the minus of we, we we're not painting on a blank canvas like culture and history has happened religion has hurt people and so there's no way to get around that and it's like almost I want to get rid of religion when we talk about sin for a moment you know at the beginning just to say like can we talk about this more reasonable thing about like you know human beings just like are like, we are not perfect. Like, can we talk about that? And then we can start to enter into spiritual conversations. But it, it's really hard because we are not painting on an, on an empty canvas. Yeah, exactly. But we do want to help construct some yes. alternative beliefs in place of this idea. Um, so the first one is the idea that the most true thing about you is that you are loved. And this is what you were most excited to talk about yeah. this morning. So do you want to give us a little PSA on being loved? <laughs> I do, I do. I wanna I wanna I wanna tap into my like most like sentimental pastor voice. <laughs> Y'all. You guys are so loved. That's that's what I wanna do today. Um, I sort of imagine um, if we can imagine the messaging of sinners of an angry sinners in the hands of an angry God as like a river, um, I wanna reverse the flow of the river. So the usual, uh, the usual flow of the river in American Christian messaging is you are rotten to the core. That's, that's the start of the river. And then downstream, but in spite of that, God loves you. That's the usual flow of the river. And I want to reverse the river. I want to say th- the most true thing about God is God is love. Mm-hmm. And the most true thing about you is that you were loved by God. And then downstream, we get life happening and people being imperfect and you know, the S hits the fan, right? But the human condition is struggling to live in the reality of the most true thing about you being that you are loved. That's the human condition. So we are, we're always battling, like we're always trying to prove ourselves. We're always trying to, we're always making choices out of insecurity because we don't often live in that reality of the most true thing about us being we are loved. We are loved by God. We always are projecting our worst self-criticisms onto others. One theologian su- suggests that persisting in like I suck thought patterns, you ever, you ever get persistent in I suck thought patterns? I certainly do. That is when we are furthest from perceiving God's presence with us because God is the always present, always loving, 
always luring voice. Like, not, not in like the, you're a perfect little snowflake or like you're the, you're the coach's son that can do no wrong. Not in that way, but in this way of like, I understand you, I see you, even your mistakes, and I love you. That is the most true thing about you. And, and the most true thing about God is those voices, those, those, those words. And so, like, I think I've gotten to the point in my own, uh, in my own life where, um, where I, can, I can say that be, most of the time, sinners in the hands of an angry God is not the, the river that I'm jumping into. I can, I can say that most of the time at this point. And so as a result of that, I really feel like in my day-to-day, prayer is the best part of my day. I can genuinely say that and not just like put up a front because I'm a pastor and you're supposed to say that so that everybody else can feel like they can do it too. Like, it is entirely unsurprising to me when people struggle with wanting to pray if the river that they're in is sinners in the hand of an angry God mm-hmm. and, the, and you're rotten to the core is the first, is the, where the river starts. I can totally get that. I, I mean, and I can get that because sometimes I am in that river, but most of the time, at some point over the last 20 years, it started to flip for me where I'm usually in the river where it starts with the most true thing about me is I'm loved. And I like, to me, we've got to reverse that flow. Like I, I, I don't, I don't know a, any regular old person, you know, aside from Trump. I don't know any of a regular old person who thinks they're perfect. And we don't need to be afraid to talk about the reality of sin if we're doing so sensibly, if we're in the river where that's not the most core thing about us. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that it, it's going to take, obviously, I want to talk about this in a minute, like when we get more practical. I, I think it takes time to get to the point where you're mostly in that river rather mm-hmm. than the other. Um, and a lot of the last 20 years has been me doing that because, like we're saying, like that messaging, sinners in the hand of an anger God, I didn't even grow up super Christian. I, I, I grew up mildly Catholic culturally, and then like my first taste of like super spicy religion was when I was 18 years old. And like that is like even then, I still have to have to, you know, like it took time for me to get to the point where I'm usually in this other river just because it's all around us. But yeah. I think we can get there. And I do want to say that we can, it's possible. So. Yeah, I think it's really important to think about how the starting place, the source, isn't damned humanity. It's beloved creation. Yes, yes. And believing this has, we've talked a lot about how this has an individual impact, but this also really has communal impact. Mm. Um, Pastor Judy Peterson has a great line that she uses a lot where she says, you are one of God's favorites, just like everybody else. (laughs) I like that one. And it's a humanizing realization. You humanize yourself. That's what I should have said with my guys. (laughs) You you are God's favorite. Just like like everyone else. else. Did I tap into that? Sorry. But you're, you're humanizing everyone around you because if the most true thing about you is that you're loved... That's also the most true thing about the person that bugs yes. you yes. or yes. that believes differently yes. than you. Yes. And I think sin management systems are just really misguided attempts at unifying people, but it's ultimately about control and not love, even mm-hmm. if it's coming from a loving place. I've done a lot of air quotes this morning. It's fine. <laughs> talking about sin. No. Sinners. Angry God. <laughs> but this assimilation of behaviors and beliefs, that's not likely to bring about actual healing and justice. But I think that accepting that love is the common ground does have the potential to bring about healing and justice. So it's not just work that we do on our own. It's something that impacts us communally. Mm. Emphasizing love and beauty as the starting point isn't just trying to create a feel-good religion either that's absent of wrestling or reckoning with the brokenness of things. Sure, I think emphasizing love and goodness goes hand-in-hand with things like lament and challenge. 
Cole Arthur Riley has this really great quote um, in her book, This Here Flesh, where she says, in lament, our task is never to convince someone of the brokenness of this world. It is to convince them of the world's worth in the first place. Yeah. True lament is not born from that trite sentiment that the world is bad, but rather from a deep conviction that it is worthy of goodness. I love that. I love that just subverting the idea that, um, like, I think the reason we, uh, that there is maybe um, an instinct to push away from, my, if my river analogy makes sense, like mm-hmm. being in the, in the um, most true thing about you is that you're loved river, is like, oh, but you're, you're, just, uh, you're just trying to make a feel-good religion. And it's like, to- no, I love this quote because it totally breaks that apart. They're like, no, of course not. The, the way to imagine a better future is starting with things you love. It's not, I mean, like, there's, there's tons of, like, um, there's social science research, and I'm, I'm, I'm like widely grabbing from things I, I don't have in front of me, so <laughs> forgive me for being like full of paraphrasing, and um, I'm, I'm, I won't use numbers, I promise, because I'll be way off. But I just remember hearing that like, if you're actually trying to motivate people, the, the difference between like, motivating by fear is good in the short term, but like really poor in the long term, and there's, there's, like, there's, there's, uh, there's actual research to demonstrate mm-hmm. this, but motivating by love or motivating by something that is, you're drawn to, motivating by hope, by longing, as, is so much more beneficial yeah. in the long term. It's like every everything points to this. Yes. <laughs> and and yet religion. No, no. We have to. We have to start with you're rotten to the core. Yeah. So the first one, the most true thing about you is that you are loved. And then yeah. the second piece here is acknowledging the presence of sin is not a threat to your goodness. It's an embrace of honesty. I think here is we have the potential to reimagine talking about sin as an act of honesty instead of an act of judgment. I can imagine for many of us, especially if you grew up in a religious context, conversations around sin are uncomfy because of our perception of judgment. We have this character of God as judge that can be very hard to see as loving or hopeful. And next week when we stay on this theme of Uh, sinners in the hands uh of an angry God, we'll look more into this angry God piece. But overall, I don't think that sin is actually the problem. I think it's the fear and judgment and hate that can come alongside talking about sin. So can we detangle sin from all of the fear, judgment, hate, eternal torment talk? Nadia Boltzweber, in the same reflection on Ash Wednesday that I mentioned earlier, um, she talks about wanting to reclaim the term sinner. But the term sinner is actually a term of deep affection. She writes, to me, there is actually great hope in admitting my mortality and brokenness because then I finally lay aside my own sin management program and allow God to be God for me, Mm. which is all any of us really need when it comes down to it. Mm. And in the same way that this functions for us individually, we think about it communally, it's not just being honest about our own individual shortcomings and mess ups, which I think a lot of religious structures put a ton of pressure on, but it's also honest about being Um, being aware of the way that sin functions in the world. Mm. So I've been thinking about sin more so lately as being structural and systemic. Because when we only think about sin as personal individual wrongdoings, the only anecdote that you get is personal individual forgiveness and salvation. But when we broaden this to a wider conversation, we can think through how do I, either knowingly or unknowingly, participate in sinful broken systems Mm. in the world And how can I hope in a wider collective healing and salvation? And this really aligns with this ongoing theme in scripture of Jesus widening the scope of healing and salvation. 
I think of the story that I walked us through a few weeks ago um, about Jesus preventing a woman from being stoned in the book of John. And this woman was caught in adultery, and so was the other partner involved, but we don't see much from him. Um, But those in power ask Jesus if they should stone her. Individual wrongdoing, individual punishment. Jesus instead widens that and allows it to be a collective healing for all involved out of a place of honesty, not a place of judgment. And that's really important because he reminds those in power that they too are sinful. Whoever is without sin, throw the first stone. Mm. He's not saying this is the most core and fundamental thing about you, but it's a reality. Mm. It's an honest look at yourself. And I think that this highlights the misdirected energy of trying to pretend that we're not sinful. Like Vincent said, I don't think anyone here believes that they are perfect. And we don't have to fall apart when we come face to face with the ways that we've failed because we can return back to the belief that we are fundamentally loved and good. So then when we interrupt sin in the world, as Jesus does, it's not coming from a place of fear or trying to earn our worth, but it's out of a place of love and longing to see restoration. It's that positive motivation that you're talking about. Yeah, it really feels like that, that scripture, Jesus interrupting the stoning, is a central scripture this Lent, like for us. Like we, we, we've, we're going back to it now for the second time, and it really does seem to capture a lot of what we are trying, what we're trying to give up is a lot of what's um, the mob mentality in mm-hmm. that scripture. And what we are trying to construct new beliefs of is the way Jesus operates. I mean, that, that's a good one to meditate on um, this Lent, yeah. that, that scripture. It's good. Is there anything else that comes to mind for you here? Yeah. I, I mean, uh, maybe kind of building on um, the expanding the scope of what you're saying of like, we can see more. Um, one of the benefits, I think, to talking about um, sin this way, where the start of the river is, is love mm-hmm. and, and sin is downstream rather than the start of the river is sin and love is downstream, um, is I, th- I think one of the benefits is you see the sinned against just as much as the sinners. And I think some of this gets at what you're talking about, a more structural understandings of, of sin and not just individual. Um, there, there's a, an, um, a theologian named Andrew Sung Park um, who talks uh, about how if your only narrative for uh, dealing with sin that you offer to people is, I once was lost, but now I'm found, something like that, then that's great for people um, who, uh, that's great for many, but you're squeezing the parts of identity for people who, is, uh, who are more sinned against, they've had something done to them by another, into a sinner's paradigm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you need that sinner's paradigm, but you also need a sinned against paradigm. Uh, and we need different things when we're sinned against than, when we, than what we need when we are the sinner. Uh, yeah. And we need healing and protection. We don't need repentance and redemption. Uh, and of course, those, like the people in the world whose identities are most sinned against are the marginalized. And so therefore, there, there's still kind of this like, even when you are, when you are trying to help sinners repent and you know, you're ta- if, even if you're taking the most, like I think, something I would get behind, you know, the most uh, progressive version of an understanding of sin, um, and you're trying to look at it that way, if your paradigm of talking about sin doesn't also include a different paradigm for the sinned against, you're still 
uh, you're still like prioritizing the sinners. You're still prioritizing mm-hmm. the powerful. Um, and so the, what this does when we when we reverse the flow, when, we, when you are loved and uh, that is at your core, uh, that is the that's the the start of the river. Then we still have a thick account for all of those ways that people hurt each other, and we still have a real like it allows us to look at the sinned against person and say if the core thing right now is happening that you have not been loved, we can respond to that. And then also we can respond to the sinners and say, oh, the core thing right now is that you are limiting somebody else's ability to know that they are loved by God. And so we have a way to respond to both sinners and sinned against. Whereas if everything is always the sinner's mentality, the sinned against get forgotten. Yeah, I think it's a really important thing to remember. So when we're thinking about some experiments here to help live ourselves into new ways of thinking, because it can be really hard to just wake up and suddenly believe that the core thing about you that's true is that you're loved. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if you had some practical tools that we can kind of lean into to help solidify this belief. Yeah, um, I think I could do some rapid fire ones and I wonder how, what you think about this. And then I have a story to tell, which I'll maybe Perfect. end. Um, first is to pay attention to your best human relationships, um, to train you what to look for from God, what to expect from God. A lot of, when we, are, when we are engaging in prayer, when we are engaging our own spiritual lives, what we expect to hear will dictate how that relationship goes. That's, that, that's what happens. And it also, also happens with human relationships. If we are expecting one thing, we will, we will sort of, you know, send that relationship on a certain track. And so when we think about the most amazing experiences of feeling loved and seen in our human relationships. Who are those people for you? Was it a mentor? Was it a parent? Was it a lover? Was it a friend? Who was it that you felt extre- like just so seen and loved by? Can you, can you return even in your memory to an experience like that? And then can you take what you've learned from that and expect the same from God? Mm-hmm. And that can help train you to believe that like, okay, if I'm jumping into the, the spirituality river, the start of that is love, not sin. The core of you is love. Sin comes down, down the line, and we have to address that. But the core of who you are is loved. Uh, so I think pay attention to your human yeah. relationships is one. I think this is a really important exercise in trusting your best instincts about God. Even as Rebecca was praying this morning of like, I'm so glad you're like this, God. Yes, I love <laughs> like that. We can listen that. to those longings within ourselves. And I think a lot of times we're taught to doubt like, oh, but, but it comes with some conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, the unconditional love is conditional. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's something that you have to earn here. You're, you're always going to be in the wrong. And I think that we can actually listen to our deepest longings of what the best picture of a loving God, a relational God looks like, yep. and trust that and lean into that. And so I think that this exercise is really helpful for that. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, this is why uh, being a part of um, a, a tradition like the Jesus tradition is so useful as well, because you, like, where, where where do you go to, to cut, like, what's the foundation you're building on to, uh, to understand what the character of God is? You're starting with God came to be among us in the person of Jesus. We, we have this image of the invisible God in Jesus. And so that's where we start. And so maybe it's meditating on the story of Jesus interrupting a stoning, and that helps us to build out what love is. Um, that, that's another example of what we can do there. Um, another one that comes to mind is therapy. Um, therapy has helped me discern love better. Like, what is what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Uh, no, uh, the, uh, what is love? Like, is is actually kind of a challenging question when you go through life and get you know 
hurt over time, right? Because every human being goes through life and gets hurt. Um, therapy has helped me sort out um, a better, like get a better handle on like the cognitive distortions that I'm doing in my life. Um, so I like, so I can better expect love from God and from other human beings. So therapy's been big for me and helping me uh, get in that river. We love therapy. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Um, and then um, another is like a, a, a prayer maybe um, that I can, that I can uh, pass off uh, from the Eastern Orthodox tradition called the Jesus Prayer. And uh, this one might trigger you, so I wouldn't suggest like rolling with it if it triggers you. Like you, take it if, if you like it. If you feel like you can get some energy from it, awesome. If it triggers you, just forget I mentioned it. Uh, but the Jesus Prayer is a breath prayer. You say something on the inhale and then you say some on the, on the exhale, and it, it revels in this idea of being uh, a sinner, but not to be cruel to yourself, mm -hmm. but to be honest with yourself. And so the prayer is, uh, on the inhale, it's Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, and then on the exhale, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Um, Again, could be triggering to some of you. I wouldn't recommend um, trying that this week. But if it's not triggering to you, if you're like, okay, I can get behind the whole like being honest with myself rather than um, being cruel to myself, that's a good one to try. Do you, is, have you ever, do you have any experience with the Jesus prayer? Yeah, and I think it's, it can be helpful too if you're feeling like those words aren't the right fit for what you're longing for mm. from God or that that doesn't, maybe referring to yourself as a sinner still carries too much bit. of a negative yeah. connotation, you can switch it up a bit yeah. and use a different name for God, use a different way that God has offered you something that you can't offer yourself. I think that's the biggest thing is yeah. acknowledging that you are in a place of being a sinner is not to say that you need to be cruel and awful to yourself. Right. It's to honestly um, just examine the ways that you are needing something beyond yourself beyond to offer yourself. you yep. hope and to show you the way and justice in the world. Yeah. I like that. I like that. I want to tell one story just yeah. is that okay? Um, I, I think uh, a piece of um, this, like I told you before, like I think most of the time now I'm living in the river that starts with I'm loved. And uh, one of the seasons that really taught me this was the fall of 2009. Um, and I, every morning, I would drop off my wife at um, a job that was killing her soul. And, and then I would, it would, she would get there super early because we were just so full of anxiety because she was just mistreated and it was just terrible. And but she would get there super early to try to get ahead on things so it wouldn't be terrible. And that would mean that I would be, like I would drop her off and then I would go off to my job and I would be getting to like three hours before I needed to be there. And so I just decided, all right, I'm gonna create a new routine. And I went to the Starbucks on Dempster in Evanston, that's not there anymore. <laughs> um, and I sat at the same table every week and I looked at the same tree that was like overhanging out the window. And in this like emotionally charged season, I, it was just a, a time where I was trying to learn how to pray in, in, in the midst of that. And I just like, what I learned in that time, one is I had a routine, that, that's really helpful to, to kind of uh, think, uh, live ourselves into new ways mm -hmm. of thinking. We, we, if, if we expect that one time effort is gonna live ourselves into new ways of thinking, that's it. I had a routine, right? I did this every day. But then I had a lot of voices in my head that were just so wonderful who were painting a picture of God like 
the river we're talking about that starts with love. And I remember one thing I learned in this time, which I still really like, um, that I, I learned from, from uh, more evangelical settings. I said, if you're list, trying to find out what is the voice of God in your head and all those voices that are going around in your head, you listen for the encourager, not the accuser. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I think that, that is so, so useful. And that is kind of what I was employing this time. I was just listening for the encourager. Where is, where is the voice that is more encouraging than normal inside my head of just endless perfectionistic, hyper-anxious thoughts? And I, like every, every day that season, I would go to work really tender <laughs> because I felt so much for my wife who was having such a hard time at work and I was going there and I was just like, what are we doing? Like, this sucks. Like, can, and, and so very tender, but really in touch with love. Yeah. I, I would, I, my circumstances were not necessarily changed in any of those prayers, but man, did I feel like God sees me and sees us. And the most true thing about me in that moment is I'm loved. And, and so I, I remember that time as pivotal for me. I think it's helpful to think of the encourager as the the moral compass, if you want to lean into that idea, yeah, of, instead yeah. of the accuser, that things like greater self-awareness and empathy and compassion for the world and encouragement, that those things can guide you in a way that's far more sustaining than shame or guilt. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think that that, sometimes prioritizing your own healing and affirming your worth, spending time meditating on love, like these things might seem very like, self-centered in a way, then we have a negative connotation for that. Yeah. But that's what's actually, yeah. that's what's yeah. essential and it's good and it's hopeful and it's healing. Yes, yes, absolutely. I, th- I think that's a really important thing. It's not self-centered to no. focus on this. I mean, there's no way for you to operate in that flow of love if, if you are not feeling it yourself. There's, eventually you will be, you'll be pasting onto other people the same criticisms that you feel coming at you from that sinner, exactly. that God who is angry. I would love if you would pray for us as we close. Yeah, yeah. Can, maybe we can try. Um, again, you totally do not have to do this. If you're going to feel triggered, I would just encourage you to um, take a beat to be quiet and, and enjoy um, a space where you, you don't feel um, lots of demands on you. Uh, but if, we'd, if you'd like to, I would love to try. Even I'm going to encourage us to say it out loud, the Jesus prayer together. So again, uh, what it is on an inhale, we take a nice big inhale and we say, Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And what we're keeping in our mind is not that we're being cruel to ourselves. We're not in the, in the river that you know, starts with you are a sinner at your core. You are loved at your core. When you are announcing that you're a sinner, when you're proclaiming that, when you're getting in touch with that, it's just because you're in that flow and it's really hard to always stay in touch with the fact that you are loved. Sometimes we just, we just oh no, but I, I need to prove it. I need to earn it. I need to, you know, it, it's so, so easy to do. That's what we mean by we are a sinner, okay? So, Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. All right, we're gonna try this together. I am gonna encourage you, if you'd like to, you totally do not have to, but if you'd like to, we can say it out loud together. So I'll guide us on the microphone so it doesn't feel like you're, you're filling the space on your own, okay? Here we go. Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, 
Have mercy on me, a sinner. One more time. Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, in whatever ways, uh, this week, in light of today's conversation, we are able to um, identify with this term sinner in a way that does not activate shame, in a way that does not um, betray this idea that the most true thing about us is that we are loved by you. We ask for your help to do that, to identify that way, because it can be so good for us and so useful for our growth and for our general interpersonal relations where we're sometimes mean to the people we love most. It can be so good for us in terms of we want to, we want to be a part of, of, of the solutions and not the problems in our society. It can be so good for us to identify as sinners, but we cannot do that if the most core thing about us is that we are sinners. It's, it, that's killing so many of us from the inside out. It's a rotten, rotten tree that's roots are just drying everything up. But if we can live in that river of love that begins with the most true thing about us, that we are loved, and I think we can, we can take a step toward this sinner identification, and it's useful. It's not shaming or terrible. So God, help us to stay in that river. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.